stood just pray together. Father, it is a wonderful and great thing that we can come before you here this morning to worship you and to gather in your name. Father, we do thank you that we've got an opportunity to be here as your people, to be refreshed, uh, to be taught, uh, to listen to you and to worship you united. Father, we thank you for so many good things. We thank you that we can uh, come here this morning to celebrate, that we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. First day of the week, Lord, we thank you that Jesus rose and that on a weekly basis we can, can remember that and celebrate that. But Father, we've got so many other things to celebrate as well. On top of that, Father, your blessings are so abundant. We thank you for uh, Peter's morning. We thank you that we can celebrate with him. Father, 80 years of uh, faithfulness, your faithfulness to him. Mm. Lord, we thank you uh, for the abundant blessings that you've poured out on him many, many years. Lord, we thank you that we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing, that we can celebrate together. Father, we pray for your blessing upon him, uh, that you would keep him many, many more years, that we can worship you and celebrate together. Father, we thank you for uh, things such as spring. Uh, it lifts our hearts to see the sunshine. It lifts our hearts uh, to feel the warmth. And Father, it reminds us again of that great truth, that you are our light. So Father, as we think about that this morning, as we uh, celebrate, as we worship, um, as we seek your face this morning, we pray that you would uh, pour out your blessings upon us. We pray that you will be with us, uh, that you would empower us, and that you would uh, bless us greatly um, as we do so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to... Um, I have a little think this morning um, about this, this theme, well, not quite the theme of spring, uh, but one of the themes of spring. Um, as we um, come together here this morning, it's uh, the very first Sunday um, in the year uh, when it's actually spring. First uh, of March, the start of spring. And hopefully this morning outside, you've noticed some of it. It's been light. Uh, it's been bright. It's been sunny. And it's great, isn't it? It lifts our hearts. It lifts our spirits. And we know that our bodies just function better uh, when it's light. Now, the question is, why, why does that happen? Why, does it, um, why do we feel better? And really, it's uh, that the winter is, is long and it's dark and we've got the short nights and we've got the long mornings um, and it gets us down. We feel it in our bodies. And as, so as soon as the sun comes out and the evenings get lighter and brighter, uh, we just feel much better. Uh, there's this connection uh, between our physical well-being and the light outside, the light around us. Now, this theme of light is actually a very important theme uh, throughout the scriptures. It's one of the most important themes throughout the scriptures. The very first thing that God says in the Bible is let there be light. It's the very first thing. It's foundational. It's the first thing that God creates. Let there be light. And there was light. Now, when you go to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, uh, what do we see there? Uh, there will be no more need for lamps. Uh, there will be no more need even for the sunshine because the Lord God will be there and the Lord God will be their light. So we see from chapter one and verse three all the way to chapter 22 and verse five, light. Now, there's three themes that I want to pick up on um, this morning uh, of, of what, what that light really means, what that light uh, is really presenting. Now, the first thing is that light is really a sign of God's presence. Throughout the Bible, we see that light is a sign of God's presence. You will remember the, the tabernacle um, and the temple. Uh, there were, were these, um, the, these uh, lampstands, the golden lampstands with the seven lights. And these lights always had to be kept on. The priest had to make sure that there was always a light burning because that represented the presence 
of God, the presence of God with his people. God is always present with his people. So the light has to be kept burning. Psalm 89 and verse 15. Blessed are those who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. The light is God's presence. But secondly, it's also a sign of God's guidance. It's not only his presence, but also his guidance. Again, we can go back to the desert experience of of Israel. And what they did have, they had a pillar of fire to give them light. So even by night, they could travel. They had some light because of the pillar of fire. That light actually guided them. It told them when to get up, uh, when to move, and when to stop. It was their guidance. The light is the, the guidance. Psalm 43 and verse 3. Send forth your light and your truth and let them guide me. Let them guide me. God's light is our guidance. So we've got, got uh, the, the presence of God, the guidance of God. And thirdly, the light is a sign of God's salvation. God's salvation. We've already read it this morning, Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. You you will remember when Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, the Savior, uh, who's going to bring salvation to his people. What does he say? The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Not just a light, a great light. So light is God's presence. It's God's guidance. And it's God's salvation. Just want to turn this morning to the book of John. If you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. Now, John was the disciple who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was very close to Jesus. And he's writing um, his memories. He's writing uh, what he remembers as being most important about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So we are in the book of John, chapter 1, and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. See that connection here? There's a connection between life and light. We've seen that this morning. It is light outside and our life has been influenced. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him, all men might believe. Now this is important. He himself was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Sorry, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now it's important to see here, John the Baptist came to testify to the light. He wasn't the light. Now at this stage, Uh, We see a very close connection between life and between light. But we don't actually know exactly what John means by this light. Uh, We know from the rest of the scripture what he's probably alluding to, but we need some more clarity. Just turn the page, uh, if you will, um, to chapter 8. John chapter 8. It's going to make it very clear. What is that light that is so closely connected with life? 
John chapter 8 and verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light. Can't be more clear, can it? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And others, he is the light. He doesn't give light. Uh, he doesn't provide light. He is the light. Now, remember, we picked up our three themes uh, that throughout the scriptures, uh, we see that God's light is his presence or is a sign of his presence, a sign of his guidance and a sign of his salvation. Now, just track with me through this one verse. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? Jesus is the light of the world. He is in the world. He is present with his people. Jesus Christ coming down into this world is his presence with his people. But then he says, whoever follows me. Now following um, kind of kind of uh, alludes to somebody is leading. Uh, there's somebody guiding. There's somebody going ahead. Uh, Jesus is leading. We are following. This is referring to his, his guidance. So it's his presence. It's his guidance. And the thirdly, the light of life. Those who follow me will have the light of life. Here we see the connection between light and life again. What is life? Salvation. To have life in Jesus Christ means salvation. So here in one verse, we see all these themes being brought together. The light of God is presence, his guidance, his salvation. Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. Now, we've seen that there's a, a very close connection uh, between the light outside and our, our physical well-being. We know that from experience and we, we see that very often. But what we see here as well is the connection between the light of the world and our spiritual well-being. We have to see, we have to experience on a daily basis this light of the world to be spiritually healthy. If we sit in a dark room all day, it's going to affect our bodies. If we are not exposed to the light, it's going to affect our bodies. We are not exposed to the light of the world. It's going to affect our spiritual well-being. So we are here this morning to, to seek God, to worship him together, to seek this light of the world, Jesus Christ. So we're going to look this morning at this, these few words. Love is not easily angered. Let's remind ourselves of uh, these various statements that are made. I think it's, I know Jasper, Paul and I have found this study challenging. Challenging to understand why it is that these definitions of love are given. But actually, we, I wouldn't say struggled, but I think we have been really challenged as we have looked at these individual statements. So let's just read. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's going to be an interesting one next week, isn't it? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 
Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I looked at that passage, I thought, Roger, you've drawn an easy one. But actually, the more I began to think about it, the more challenged I was. You know, one of the things I did was read through every reference to God being angry in the Old Testament. There are 57 of them that relate particularly to the people of God. So, you know, you get the message from the Old Testament that we have an emotional God. We have a God who responds to the things that you and I do. So my challenge next was, okay, realizing that this appears again and again in the Old Testament, what lessons can we learn? Well, the first mention is actually in Genesis 18 and verse 30, where Abraham is praying. He was a very perceptive man. He, was, he knew he was pleading on behalf of his nephew Lot. He was concerned about the judgment of God coming upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he keeps talking to God. He asks God, Lord, if there are 50 righteous in that city, will you spare the city? And you know the story. He, he comes down from 50 to 10. And in the middle of uh, his bringing the tariff down, he actually says, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be, be found? And God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Now, the point I, that challenged me was here is Abraham praying. He knows that he's got in mind his nephew Lot. The truth is, he only had one solution to the problem of Lot. His solution to the problem of Lot was that God did not bring judgment upon the city. Actually, God had a different solution, as we know, didn't he? God's solution was actually to send angels to Sodom and bring Lot out of Sodom. But Lot, uh, Abraham was aware that when he was involved in prayer, there was the danger that he would pray out of the mind and will of God. He recognized that God had a plan. God was holy and God could be angered. And so he comes into the presence of God and he pleads with God and he also says, Lord, I don't want to be outside of your mind and your will. I recognize that you are an absolute and holy God. I was challenged by that as I thought about that. You know, the God that I live before 
And the God that you live before is a God who expects us to recognize he has a holy will, which it is our responsibility to work out. You know, I've told you about my grandmother before and told you about on the wall in, in her dining room, she had the text, maybe today. And she const. I remember asking her on many occasions, Grandma, what's that there for? And she says, that's to remind me the Lord might come any day. But in another room, she had another verse. And that verse said, Thou God seest me. Now, if you go to St. Fagans in one of the uh, cottages there, you can see thou God seest me. And I remember going there with a school party and I thought to myself, this is an opportunity to, you know, test what the children know about the use of Old English. And I asked the children, can you, can you read that to me? Truth is, they couldn't. They just couldn't. So they, they, one of the children said, well, what does it say, sir? Because one of them had tried to, to read it. Thou God ceased me, you know, and the other said, no, that's not right. And I said, no, it's not right. And, but they couldn't get it. So they asked me, sir, what does it mean? So I was able to tell them that this was a verse from the book of Genesis. And it was a verse that was given to Hagar telling her that God sees everything. And I know that my grandmother had that verse up because she was someone who liked to constantly remind herself that wherever she was, whatever she was doing, God was seeing her, and God saw and understood. The truth is, I did it this week. I actually wrote out, no, I didn't, I printed out, all the 57 mentions of God being angry in the book of Genesis. And what I observed when I printed out all, all of those uh, verses is that it applied to individuals like Abraham, David, Solomon. God was angry with David and Solomon over something that they did. So I understood that God's anger reflected on individuals. But actually, more often, it was God being angry with the nation for things that the nations do. And, you know, the more I looked at that, the more I'm challenged to make sure that I understand, you know, God is not someone who is up there cuddly, which he is, of course. But God is someone who is emotionally involved with me, what I do, also with the church here in Llandaff North and wherever. God is someone who is emotionally involved. And it's so important that we understand that the love that we receive from God 
is a love from a God who is not easily angered. Now, you'll be pleased to know we're not going to go through all 57 mentions uh, in the Old Testament. In fact, we're not going to go through any more than the one we've already looked at. But we are going to look at three references in the life of your Lord and mine to him being angry. And we'll start off with Mark's Gospel and Mark 31. We'll read it. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Notice. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what are the things that grieved our Lord and what made him angry? Well, I'll suggest there are a few of them here in our passage. First of all, we observe in verse number two that the motivation was wrong. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving amongst humankind, and he's seeking to bring blessing on humankind. But you see, what the Lord Jesus Christ did, and what he still does, is he has totally different sets of principles and attitudes as the world in which we live. And so these Jewish leaders, some of them, we are told, these Jewish leaders had one interest, and that one interest was to trip the Lord Jesus Christ up. They didn't like what his life was telling them to do. And so they are seeking to prevent him doing the will of God. And we see what happens as we go down through the passage. We see that these people are totally unresponsive to the word of God. You know, he asks them a question, which is lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil or to save life or to kill? You see, they had legalistically interpreted the Ten Commandments that they shouldn't work. And that was completely wrong. Their responsibility was to interpret the word of God, understanding who God is. And that's a lesson to us, isn't it? You know, it's very easy 
for us to be legalistic in our interpretation of things. You do it this way or else. That was never the way of the Lord, was it? The way of the Lord was to be involved in blessing. And what happens in that situation? We read that your Lord and mine was angry. Did he love those people? Of course he did. But what he hated was their wrong motivation. What he hated was the way in which they were living. And we read that his response was anger. We get another example in John chapter 2. It doesn't actually say in John chapter 2 that the Lord was angry, but he clearly was. If you look at what, what happens here in John chapter 2, we read here, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money chamber changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered exactly what was written. Zeal for your house will eat me up. A few interesting things here, which I'd like just to point out to you. Have you noticed when this all happened? Jewish Passover. Have you noticed what the Lord called the Passover? Was it the Jewish Passover? It was instituted by God. It was the Lord's Passover in the book of Exodus, wasn't it? But here, by the Gospel of John, the Lord is calling it the Jewish Passover. You make your way through John's Gospel, it's interesting to notice that every time there is a reference to divinely instituted feasts, he either says they are your feasts or he says they are Jewish feasts. Because the, the lesson is quite clear. What is part of the anger that builds up in your Lord and mine is the way that the people of God, notice this, had taken God out of what they did and had turned the feast of Jehovah into the feasts of the Jews. And that's a challenge to us as well, isn't it? You know, it is so easy to live life the way that we want to live it rather than seeking to live our lives as God wants us to live it. And what living as God wants us to do is like the Apostle Paul to constantly be saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? I find that a very interesting statement from the Apostle Paul. 
because in the past, he would have always answered, the law tells me to do this, that, and the next thing. But suddenly, Paul had come to an understanding that faith is not in a set of written documents, even if those documents come from God. Faith is in a living person. Notice, you see, what's going on here. You know, here in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. What was going on? If you had said to these Jewish leaders what's going on, all they would have said to you, dear brother, I want to tell you that we are carrying out the will of God. Really? Yes. What we are doing is we are bringing here into the temple the right animals to be offered. You know, one of the problems in the past, in the book of Malachi, for example, is people brought sheep that were lame and they brought animals that were diseased and so on, and they offered them to God. But what we're doing, dear brother, is we are making sure that what is offered is absolutely correct. They would have justified it, wouldn't they? But the truth of the matter was, what they were actually doing is they were turning the house of God into a marketplace. And this, the Lord was quite willing to say that to them. So it meant that your Lord and mine had to act. That's the thing for us too, isn't it, you know? He, he didn't just believe it. He actually acted. And so we learn as we look at these illustrations of your Lord and mine being angry that there are a number of quite significant elements to them. Let's just look at the last illustration in Scripture, Matthew chapter 21. Somebody told me yesterday, you know, I'm someone who when I'm preparing for something, I'm very happy to discuss it with other people to see if they've got any, uh, any bright ideas for me. I was told yesterday that the present Pope has said there are two times in Scripture where Jesus sinned. And those two times we've read together. I think I would actually say if his assessment of sin is correct, it's three times. But of course it wasn't. The Lord was acting in righteous anger. And we observe what makes him angry. And uh, here we are. And uh, we read in this passage that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Quite clearly a different incident. You see, the truth is the Lord had taught them in John 2 that what they were doing was wrong, but they carried on doing it because they were they were set in their ways. That's a challenge to us as well, isn't it? You know, sometimes when God speaks to us, we listen. 
but we don't put it into practice. And in fact, we're very quick to go back to doing what we did before. And that clearly is what happened in the time of your Lord and mine. And actually, the message that the Lord gives them uh, on the second occasion is rather different. He says to them, listen, it is written. And he is now referring to exactly what scripture is saying. The first time, the Lord just threw them out and explained to them what was going on. But on this occasion, he actually speaks to these Jewish leaders and he says to these Jewish leaders, it is written. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He was actually quoting from Isaiah 56 and verse number seven, where the prophet says, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I find it challenging, don't you? You know, If you had spoken to those scribes and Pharisees, they would have told you what they were doing was based upon the law. The Lord Jesus Christ answers them by quoting from Scripture and making it quite clear to them that what they were doing was completely against what Scripture was teaching them. The Lord also goes on to say something I find very interesting. You know, listen to the children. What what do the children say? From the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth praise. God wants praise from pure hearts. So as we think about what it means that love is not easily angered, we learn very significantly what our responsibilities are. We need to understand, don't we, that we need to see things as God sees them. There is always a danger that we will make the scriptures say what we want it to say. Very easy. But actually, we need to see things as God sees them. We have to understand the teaching of the word of God and what it means for us. And we looked, didn't we, at Isaiah 56 and verse 7, where it's quite clear that our responsibilities towards service for God is to be spiritual. See, what the problem was, mentioned in John 2, was they had turned the house of God into a market. They had used the things of God for their own benefit. We have to understand that our responsibility is to do the will of God. We have to be fearless in doing the will of God. We see how fearless our Lord was in doing the will of God. And we have to love as God loves. And that means that as we are 
loving each other, and we do love each other, don't we? It's lovely as God's people to be together and to enjoy relationships together. But it doesn't mean that anything goes, does it? There is a danger that we will interpret love as saying, okay, doesn't matter what you do. No. What the Lord did was when his people, his people were acting as they should not act, he was sad and he was angry. And again and again, you see that in the Old Testament. If you want my printout of the 57 mentions, I'm happy to give it to you. And you will see that again and again, God is angry. Sometimes you don't really understand why. But you know what has happened is that people have not done what God wanted them to do. You know, one classic example is there were times when David was told to count all the children of Israel, and he did it. But the last time he did it, God was angry with him. Why? Because God hadn't told him to do it. He was doing it for the wrong reason. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Sometimes. God tells us to do something and we do it, and that's fine. There are other times when we do it and our motivation is wrong. And the result of that is we hurt God. So I trust that these musings on what it means that love is not easily angered will be something that challenges us, that we will make sure that in the lives that we live, we are doing what God wants us to do. God doesn't want us to take him for granted. I think that's always a danger, that we take God for granted. You know, Paul doubtless remembers a conversation that he and I had with a good friend of ours called Henry Tukanik. And we were in Poland. We were sitting round the lunch table and we were talking about somebody who was involved in sin. And he said to, to both of us, Roger, do not be surprised if God steps in and acts, he said, I've seen it before. Paul and I will tell you he was right. You know, we have a loving God. We have a caring God. But we have a God who we cannot play fast and loose with. Our responsibility is to do what God wants us to do.